Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. now exceeds the number in any other country, including China, the federal government response leaves Americans with poor prospects for testing, treatment, or sustained economic relief. We speak to Professor Niambi Carter. We found half a trillion dollars to bail out industries, yet we still don't have a way to, say, get more robust testing for everyday citizens who are exhibiting symptoms of coronavirus. And leave it to corporate media to provide only superficial coverage of the coronavirus crisis and the all-but-disappeared presidential race. We speak to journalist John Jeter. We've got this other problem now. We've got this plague, right, this modern-day plague, and we're not built for this. We're just not. We, you know, we've had a, a policy of 45 years now of government austerity, of privatization. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, if this week in Washington was a movie, it could be titled The Pandemic Parallel Universe. In one world, the U.S. Labor Department reported that a record 3.3 million Americans applied for unemployment insurance during the week ending March 21st, as businesses were shut down across the country to battle community spread of the deadly coronavirus. In the other world, the U.S. Senate, made up of millionaires and equally wealthy backers, passed a $2.2 trillion emergency relief package that includes a one-time payment of $1,200 to adults, some expanded unemployment benefits for four months, but a half trillion dollars for corporations, while a separate $4 trillion more is already allocated by the Federal Reserve for big corporations. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is balking at a $1 billion price tag for 80,000 ventilators that will be needed to care for the sick. As we go to broadcast, the House of Representatives is set to debate and vote on the package. Addressing reporters, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi predicted unanimous support for the measure, though progressives urged representatives to secure more long-term aid for working families and to cut the free money to corporations. Crystal Ball, host of The Hills show Rising, is one of many progressives who warned against allowing the corporate bailout to be coupled in the same legislation that is providing direct relief to workers. The bottom line is this, $1,200 and unemployment insurance is not nearly enough to trade for a $4 trillion investment in massive corporate control over our country for years to come. Democrats, Republicans, anyone, I implore you, kill this bill. Forget about the corporate bailouts. Pass $2,000 per month, immediate cash assistance with no means testing so it can go out quickly, immediately. Go ahead and beef up unemployment insurance plus small business assistance right now. And if you must do corporate bailouts, they can come later or, you know, not at all. More on Washington's response to the COVID crisis later in the show. 
In other updates on Thursday, the United States surpassed all countries in the world in the number of coronavirus cases, with at least 83,000 confirmed cases and more than 1,000 deaths. The island nation of Cuba sent doctors to Italy and Iran to combat outbreaks of the virus there. In the United States, incidents of racist, physical and verbal attacks on Asian Americans are being reported around the country. And Trump's Environmental Protection Agency head, former coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler, is using the coronavirus crisis to announce the indefinite suspension of pollution rules for industry. In D.C., all businesses deemed non-essential were shut down as of 10 p.m. Wednesday, March 25th, and these are all businesses not related to health care, food and household essential supplies, social services, communications and information technology, energy and automotive, financial services, education institutions for distance learning, transportation and logistics, construction and building trades, and essential government functions. Kurt, who works at the D.C. restaurant chain Busboys and Poets, shared with WPFW Radio this week about the plight of restaurant workers who are laid off or who have lost their jobs. You can just see the strain on everybody's faces. You know, it's just hard. And none of us know what will come up, you know, how long this will go, so many people out of work, how many people will be able to afford to eat out right away when this is over. There's so much uncertainty, aside from everybody worrying about the um, health consequences. You know, what we're, we're all worried about our health and our family's health, and to have this thrown in on it is tough. There will be a Know Your Rights Teletown Hall on Friday today, March 27th, as we go to broadcast, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., with information about protections for workers, consumers, and tenants during the COVID-19 pandemic. The call-in number is 888-802-8640, ID number 904-7942. That call-in number is 888-802-8640, ID number 904-7942. For more information, contact the Office of D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, and also you can follow the hashtag COVID-19Pandemic. As of Thursday night, March 26th, the District of Columbia reported a total of 267 confirmed coronavirus cases and three deaths. And healthcare workers are feeling the pressure. Lydia Curtis has more. In order to get a medical perspective on the magnitude of the health crisis in D.C., I spoke to two experienced African-American medical professionals on the front lines. Mark Prue clinical manager of the pharmacy department at George Washington University Hospital, said that COVID-19 in D.C. is spreading fast and that the only way to slow it down or flatten the curve is to close all public spaces. He says that GW Hospital has enough equipment for now, but will not be able to keep up with the demand at the rate that we are progressing with cases. He is urging the public to take the pandemic seriously and stay at home. He has to go into work every day, and on his way to work on Monday, he was horrified by the traffic jam he ran into on Constitution Avenue, created by people on their way to view the cherry blossoms. Another healthcare professional, a physician, said that he could not effectively do his job because he cannot get the protective gear needed. 
He said he may need to shut his office down temporarily. He was highly critical of the federal government for not acting quickly enough with testing and social distancing when China first alerted the world about the virus more than two months ago. Mr. Pru was angry but reserved, but the doctor was distraught. Clearly, if professionals on the front lines are agitated about the public health ramifications of our policies and actions or lack thereof, we need to be concerned and demand that our policymakers do more. Additions to the proposed federal stimulus bill will provide aid to hospital workers and support more protective gear for healthcare workers. But for now, healthcare workers in DC are trying to help themselves by staying safe and healthy. Coronavirus.dc.gov is the District of Columbia's website for information and assistance for DC residents. For On the Ground, I'm Lydia Curtis. Again, that district hub for more information is coronavirus.dc.gov. That's coronavirus.dc.gov. And finally, in culture and media, the 2020 Olympic Summer Games are postponed for one year in Japan. Google is facing criticism for removing a website used by people in Iran for tracking the virus that is impacting their country. Google said that it was removed at the request of the Trump administration, which is still targeting Iran, Venezuela, and Cuba with illegal economic sanctions that are preventing these countries from fighting the COVID-19 virus. Also, social justice organizations are continuing their activism online. The Movement for Black Lives held a virtual town hall on March 25th, and Code Pink sponsored two webinars this week, including one, on the impact of the coronavirus and the war in Yemen. Stocks of online streaming services such as Netflix and Zoom are up. And speaking of Netflix, our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, who is a secret movie buff, recommends these movies available on online platforms while you are stuck in the house. Starting with the controversial documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? the documentary Pandemic, and the Netflix documentary series Dirty Money. This season's six powerful episodes of Dirty Money include Slum Millionaire, about Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, and his role as a predatory slumlord in Baltimore. The investigation reveals how Kushner may have used his White House position to secure business deals for his private company. This is a trailer for the series Dirty Money, which premiered this month on Netflix. They knew it was happening. They did nothing about it. There are certain people in our global community who think they are above all laws. It's all political. It is abundantly clear that Kushner companies made the lives of its tenants a living hell. No owner is above the law, not even the family of the President of the United States. This is a tier one predator. Wells Fargo, issue me a credit card without my approval. They converted my and they still came and repoed my truck. Every single subsidiary of Wells Fargo was engaging in some sort of fraudulent activity. And they masked that as a convenience to you. How could the wife of a politician afford such luxury? I think he thought he could get away with it. Guardianship exploitation is the crime of the 21st century. This is supposed to be America. 
their gold is tainted and they're selling to the U.S. Mint. Nobody cares. As long as the money is flowing, the business continues. These days, babies are being born pre-polluted. They're all plastic. EPA dismissed the views of an inconvenient pediatrician. They said we were just bad apples. We are not bad apples. We did not make millions, you did. I always told my staff, tell me the truth, I'll do the lying. And that is the trailer for the six documentaries that are part of the Dirty Money series on Netflix that premiered this month. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Preparation for the king And they line the sidewalks With every sort of shiny thing They will be surprised When they hear him say Take me to the alley Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say I am your friend Come to my table Rest here in my garden You will have a pardon This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As we go to broadcast, the House of Representatives is set to vote on a record-setting $2.2 trillion relief package in response to the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Progressives led by Senator Bernie Sanders fought for and secured an expansion of unemployment benefits of up to 100% of salary and health insurance benefits for four months. And for the first time ever, those working in the gig economy and freelancers would be eligible for unemployment benefits. Here to discuss this unprecedented political and economic moment is Niambi Carter, assistant professor of political science at Howard University and author of American Wild Black, African Americans, Immigration, and the Limits of Citizenship. She joins me from here in D.C. Welcome back to the show, Niambi. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, let's first get your reaction in general to this relief package. Even though progressives secured more for working families, a one-time payment of $1,200 really won't go far for most people, especially here in D.C. At the same time, it was reported on Thursday that 3.3 million people applied for unemployment benefits. And this is a record-shattering amount. The most ever that had applied was 700000 in the past. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think the $1,200 is not even going to be close to covering the expenses for most people. And when you look at the income limit, even people who say make $80,000 or $78,000 won't be eligible for much of that full amount. So, I mean, this is not really going to help. And if this is going to be taxed income, then it really won't help. Uh, Things that people were really concerned about, like freezing mortgages and rents and student loan payments and other things like that, seem to still be laying out there and just nobody's really doing anything about it. And I think that's the part that really scares people because folks are thinking about that cash that they have on hand. So even if this money does come through, it could be months before people see any of those dollars. Yeah. And at the same time that you have this tremendous number of people applying for unemployment, this package includes a half a billion dollars for corporations with the kind of loose oversight that was put into place after the 2008 financial meltdown. So we were talking about the airline industry, the hotels, the cruise industry, all these industries that have been hit, but many industries have been hit. And it just doesn't seem like we've learned any lessons from 2008. Right. Well, when you give more money to corporations than you do to medical institutions, I think we know we're in a real pickle. I mean, when you have states having to fast track students out of medical school and nursing school so that they can assist and address this crisis, that lets you know what we're dealing with. And I think the disappointment that many people feel with this $500 billion, right, this half a trillion dollars in relief for these industries, is that these industries haven't really proven themselves to be honest dealers when it comes to their employees, when it comes to their consumers. And so it's like helping them to do what? Continue to make lots of money and lay off employees and not do the best that they can so that their employees could, say, take some of the the pressure off of our failing uh, social safety nets. And then I think for many of us who are probably sitting out here armchairing this, thinking about this at home, it's like we found half a trillion dollars to bail out industries, yet we still don't have a way to, say, get more robust testing for everyday citizens who are exhibiting symptoms of coronavirus. We still don't have money to make sure that students and working adults who are saddled with student loan debt, that they can find some relief for that. So I think many people have just been left cold by this. It's more than probably what many people expected Congress to do, but it's certainly insufficient. Yeah, and you mentioned the hospitals and the aid to hospitals. And for me, one of the biggest scandals is the fact that healthcare workers don't have protective gear. I mean, it's just, it's beyond incredible for me. It's disgraceful. And the fact that Trump's response was to let industry handle it rather than invoke whatever uh, powers he has as commander in chief to direct more resources go toward manufacturing what people need here to keep doctors and other healthcare workers safe. Absolutely. And I think many people have felt like this is where having a really strong executive who really understands executive power is really important because the Defense Production Act, I think is what you're referencing, could open up a lot of resources to creating the things that our healthcare workers need. People need gloves, they need masks, and they need them 
in bulk. And it's not enough to ask people to create ventilators when medical professionals have been telling us for decades that we don't have the medical infrastructure we need in case of an event like this. I mean, I think this is sort of the worst possible scenario for many for many of those working in healthcare. But we've been saying, folks have been saying that we don't have an infrastructure that can care for people with pre-existing conditions who are using things like ventilators, people who do get the flu and may need protective masks. I mean, this was the case with my dad a few months ago. When I would go to the hospital to see him, I had to wear a protective mask. That we don't have enough to take care of those folks that are already out there and the folks that are likely to contract uh, COVID-19 and their needs for ventilators and protective masks and all those kinds of things. So I think this is going to expose lots of gaps that we have in this country, not just in terms of our social safety net, but in terms of our healthcare industry and the fact that we have a government that is basically sitting here wringing its hands and leaving it all to Elon Musk and these people to do the work that really we think is in the public interest. And that makes it the government's job. Right. You know, and you, you mentioned your dad and I hope that he's okay. Yes. Yes. He is. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to play this clip by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick of Texas, who went on Fox News this week, basically chiming in with uh, Trump's call for the people to go back to work and to to get the economy going and that the the cure for coronavirus should not be worse than the disease, creating this false dichotomy. But anyway, I'm going to play this and and then I'm going to come back to you. Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country, like me, I have six grandchildren, that what we all care about and what we love more than anything are those children. And I want to, you know, live smart and, uh, and, and see through this, but I don't want the whole country to be sacrificed. You know, my message is that uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. And, uh, and my, my, I guess my point in playing that is the fact that he could talk about taking a chance because he probably would have access to adequate health care. He's a wealthy uh, business owner, if not the 1% part, close to it, right? And so he's not going to have any trouble getting a test or getting health care if he gets sick. My elders in my family are the people, so many people in New York right now, they can't even get a test. That's more treatment. So I just found it really shocking to hear people talk about basically sacrificing my elders and maybe your elders, but not theirs. Well, it's callous and it's cruel. And I think this idea that we just have to get back to business as usual is the exact opposite thing that we want to do and is guaranteed to lead to mass casualties. I mean, have we not learned anything from what happened in Italy, in South Korea, in China for how they have been able to control and manage it? 
-hmm. and places where it hasn't gone so well. And I think that's what this sort of lag time granted us a little bit of grace to do, which is let's look around the world and see what's happening. Let's consult our public health officials in this country so they can actually tell us what to do and how to manage it. But we have an administration that really does not seem to trust the very agencies that are there to support him in his decision-making. And we seem to have lots of people who have lots of money. And as you rightly point out, access to health care or the ability to get um, tested who right. are sort of cavalier about telling the rest of us just go back to work so that the economy doesn't tank. Mm -hmm. And what they really mean is you go back to work because I'll be fine. I don't have to work because the people that work for me enrich me. And I think that kind of rhetoric is really trying to ignore the fact that this is something that if we really put people ahead of money and our own sort of self-interested needs, that we could actually manage. We could actually tackle. And yes, it is going to hurt. A lot of people are being hurt right now, but that doesn't stop if we just tell people to to continue to act as if we're in normal times, telling people to do that is actually really dangerous and is going to cause more harm than good. Now, I noticed that I was looking at the title of your book and the phrase, the limits of citizenship stood out for me because when we think about healthcare, shelter, food, and many of the things that people will be thinking about right now as they are uh, so basically sequestered in their homes. Many of us with children, um, how to feed our children, a lot of grandparents who may be very vulnerable to coronavirus, caring for grandchildren. And that phrase, the, the limits of citizenship, it just, it just reminds me that these things aren't rights to us in this country. There was a lot of criticism over China and how they handled it originally. And, and mu much of what's printed in this country about China are lies in terms of how they handled the crisis and how they informed the whole world what the virus was and, and how they dealt with it. But no one there had to pay for a test. No one there had to pay for a treatment. People had nurses visit them. They had food delivered to them. Uh, they they separated people out who were sick so that they could heal away from their families instead of infecting their families. So it's just like a whole whole different system, and those things aren't uh, provided to us as citizens here, and ne neither is healthcare um, a right here. Yeah, I mean, I think you know China and what they did or didn't do in terms of informing the world is really immaterial. Because we did have a bit of a lag as we saw this virus literally move across the world. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear early on, if we've been paying attention, as early as January, that there was some inkling that something bad was going to happen. Right. And yet we were dragging our feet. But I think you're exactly right in terms of people really having a realization moment. I mean, I think people have already always known, even before this moment that something was rotten in Denmark, right? That there was something fundamentally not right about the fact that we can spend all of this money in taxes and literally spend trillions of dollars year after year on wars and other things, yet we can't figure out how to get most of our citizens medical coverage, 
right? That very basic thing that we need to keep our economy strong, to keep our educational institutions strong, to keep our country moving along, to not overburden our healthcare system is by keeping people healthy, right? Like that old saying, an ounce of prevention. And yet we never invested in that because I think Americans have a very particular way of thinking about what the state's responsibility is and what it owes its citizens. And typically we have said, well, we can do this much for you, right? We can make sure the roads are paved or that you have trains that don't necessarily work all that great, but you have the, you have a postal service. But when it comes to those things that are about you privately, like your health, et cetera, then the government is sort of hands off. And I think for many of us, particularly the most vulnerable of us, particularly for low wealth communities, there's something wrong about that because that's who you should be caring for the most. Mm -hmm. Yet we see bailouts for corporations. I mean, this was one of the criticisms of Barack Obama's bailout in 2008, in part because we helped banks and others remain solvent while millions of Americans lost their homes and communities were devastated financially because of this mortgage crisis. And I think there's something that people see as fundamentally unfair about the way that this country works. And the coronavirus, again, is just exposing that and making it starker for us to see when we think about all of these wealthy people, for example, who've gotten tests, but people can't get tests even though they're exhibiting symptoms and people are passing away. I mean, New York is seeing devastating numbers um, in terms of death. And I think that should, that should make all of us, regardless of what our, what we feel in terms of our partisan or ideological position concerned, because if we think about human rights, Healthcare would seem to be right up there with mm-hmm. any of the other human rights, like freedom of speech and freedom to practice your religion. Right, right. You know, so what will you be watching for in the coming days? I, I listened to um, um, Bernie Sanders gave a, kind of an update on the legislation that the, the Senate passed, the Senate version of the bill. He said he believed that there would be another, there would be the need for another relief package again and that this would not be the last one so what what are you looking for in the coming days and watching for in the coming days well i definitely think we're going to hear more from joe biden and bernie sanders because they are still in a primary fight i mean everything has sort of all the news has sort of taken a back seat mm-hmm. to this coronavirus as it should but i think we'll hear more from this because these are both people who are still engaged in a fight. But Bernie Sanders is a current office holder. He is currently serving in the Senate. So I think we'll certainly get more updates from him about what's going to be next. I mean, he's talked about expanding not just unemployment insurance, but also thinking about this in terms of environmental justice and thinking about uh, workplace safety. So he's talking about expanding sick leave. So I think we'll probably hear more of this. And I think as more of the details about this deal come through, I think people will see how inadequate it is to manage most of the needs of average people, right? What corporations' needs are, you know, I don't know that most of us can identify with, but all of us know people who are restaurant workers, who are bartenders, who are domestics, who are um, who who drive Uber or do something like that, um, who are hurting right now. 
who of barbers, hairdressers, who cannot actually go to work right now. What are they to do? How are they supposed to survive? $1,200 is not going to do it. It's not going to do it for a single person. And it's certainly even with the enhancements for children are not going to be enough if we still allow places to evict people. If we still allow places to not just put a freeze on rent, but say, hey, you know, you don't have to pay us for the next three months. But when these three months are up now, here's your past due balance and what you owe. We need a very comprehensive policy that isn't just a rich people's policy or even an upper middle class people's policy, but a working people's policy, because I don't think that many of our lawmakers actually understand what working people's lives look like. Even me, who is middle class, I think, by all standards, I still got to pay my student loans. I have a mortgage to pay. Right. I have all of these other bills that are not going to stop. And I'm scared. Because what does this mean? You know, even though I work at a university, summer school is probably not going to happen in the same way. So will I be able to make money over the summer? I'm not sure. And a lot of people are going to find themselves in similar circumstances, everyday people. So I don't know if these folks have any idea what $1,200 looks like. It certainly won't cover rent for many people. So much less food needs and utility payments aren't stopping. And we're going to be putting a drain on our utilities because we're going to be home more. So I think we are in for it, as you rightly said, is seeing another round of having to come back and offer financial and also mental health and wellness relief for people. Mm -hmm. This is taking a toll, I think, on people's mental health. And I don't think we're addressing that as robustly as we are their physical health. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep a watch right along with you and see what's happening, not only uh, from the White House and from Capitol Hill, but from the people. I mean, you know, uh, you know, a lot of activists, uh, the Movement for Black Lives had a virtual town hall on Wednesday night, and um, I wasn't able to check it out. But it's, it occurs to me that people are concerned about our ability to raise our voices <laughs> during this time. I said absolutely, and they should be, because I think this is a moment. This is going to be a turning point moment, I think, for many of us. I don't ever recall a moment like this in my entire life, not even September 11th. Right. was like this. I mean, yes, it hurt parts of the district and, you know, the DMV in New York and uh, that town of Pennsylvania, but it was not national in the way that this is. And nobody is safe from this. And I do think this is going to be a really important moment. And it will be interesting to see what people do in terms of movement politics, but also what it's going to be for our electoral politics. How are people going to engage when their very livelihoods are on the on the line? Yeah. Well, I have to end it there. But like I said, we'll definitely be watching right along with you. I've been speaking to Niambi Carter, assistant professor of political science at Howard University and author of American Wild Black, African-Americans, Immigration and the Limits of Citizenship. Thank you for joining me today, Niambi. Thank you so much, Esther.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this is the fourth show of the month, so it's time for our deep dive into culture and media. And rejoining us is John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to On the Ground, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. Well, when I do catch some corporate media, I'm struck by the fact that Americans are caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of what they can see. On the one hand, you have uh, corporate outlets like MSNBC really pinpointing uh, Trump's chaotic and disastrous response to the coronavirus outbreak here, uh, this tremendous crisis. And then the Trump administration has been giving daily briefings on the crisis, which are filled with misinformation. He's basically on screen defying the advice of his health experts. And now he's talking about trying to get people back to work by Easter. (laughs) Or he wants the churches filled. He wants the churches filled on Easter. And then... In in all this coverage, there's no really analysis of the systemic failure. There's just this need to put everything on Trump or the right may blame the Democrats, who knows, but there's no look at the systemic failure unless you go to alternative media or even watch some of the town halls put on by Bernie Sanders. Then you can really get some really good information about the systemic failure. Yeah, no, I agree completely. The press has become so myopic, sort of gradually and then suddenly with the election of Donald Trump, and they focus almost obsessively on sort of every misstep by Donald Trump. They can't see the forest for the trees. And so what we have is this sort of, you know, this this pandemic is very much like the political and economic crisis that uh, is, 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 has really taken effect in the United States. And it's uh, a failure of all our democratizing institutions. But I would argue none so much as the media, which just does not, um, you know, it's a real failure that it doesn't, doesn't ask the questions which can lead us to useful information, useful answers. And, and again, this is because they're so myopically focused on every misstep, every sneeze or, or mispronunciation by Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, our problems did not begin with Donald Trump. Uh, he is a, a symptom of what ails the United States, but he's not the problem. We get rid of him, we still got, we still got a mess on our hands. So from where you are in Costa Rica, give me a sense of, of how people there are viewing the crisis unfolding here and in many countries. Well, I think here in Costa Rica, and I think this is true of certainly most places in South America, they see the United States as uh, unhinged. And uh, if I can be blunt, uh, not the smartest population of people. Uh, They're right about that, right? But, But a lot of this, again, is back to the media. They're just missing a lot of information. A lot of this dates back to the Iraq war. When, you know, people here in South America, the Caribbean, were getting information, even images, that people in the United States just didn't see. And it informs a more well-rounded, more four-dimensional, three-dimensional idea, notion of what's happening. And so they see the United States as being kind of 
Uh, and, well, it's circling the drain, right? I mean, it's very well known here that China, and China, I don't think we, anyone would hold it up as a model for what the United States should be, but still, you know, it's commonly known here in Costa Rica that China has already sort of quelled this uh, pandemic, right? That they have gotten over the curve, right? And I think the, the question is, can the United States duplicate that? I think right now, if you ask most Costa Ricans, indeed, I would say most people throughout the world, they would say no, that, that we have a much harder road to climb. And that's because of all the systemic problems that we have in the United States. This is just sort of the culmination of all of that, right? This, is the, this, is, this pandemic is the breakdown of all systems. And so I, I think most people, in one way or another, throughout, certainly throughout Costa Rica, but also throughout the world, I think they kind of intuit that, that we're up against sort of uh, what would this be? This would be sort of this would be sort of what Buster Douglas was to Mike Tyson. This is the <laughs> United States, right? We we we're facing a potential a potential knockout right here. Well, you know, when you mention war and you mention the Iraq War and the perception of the United States around the world, I couldn't help but think of the UN Secretary General this week, basically asked nations to kind of forget about war. You know, forget about weapons of war, destruction, and that this is not a time for war. And, and I really thought that he, he had to be speaking to the United States, right? (laughs) Because no other country is worrying about waging war and attacking people and waging war through sanctions other than the United States. Uh, No, exactly. I mean, that's what we exist for at this point in time. As the empire starts to crumble, we exist to wage war because that's the only way we can sort of sustain, and even that's a faulty notion, the only way we can sustain uh, our so-called quality of life. Well, we've got this other problem now. We've got this plague, right, this modern-day plague, and we're not built for this. We're just not. We've had a a policy of 45 years now of government austerity, of privatization. Think about how other countries think. When you have market failures, you create worker-owned cooperatives. Well, that's not even part of our conversation in the United States. I've certainly not heard anyone talk about worker-owned cooperatives for health care, for the media, for these industries that are in trouble, that are in jeopardy. Okay, we're going to give the airlines uh, some money. Why not uh, nationalize it, make it a worker-owned cooperative? There's not even a conversation about these things. And so the discussion in the United States is so limited, and that is part and parcel of a media that is dysfunctional, to say the least. So aside from the coronavirus coverage, of course, the other issue is that we actually still have a presidential race still happening. And what happened this week is that the Bernie Sanders campaign either requested a debate for April or maybe there's one scheduled and he kind of brought that up. Oh, by the way, what are we doing about our debate in April? And uh, Biden said, oh, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm going to do a debate. Uh, I think we're finished with debates. (laughs) So um, I don't know. There's almost kind of this game being played about how much Biden will be shown and how much he has to actually perform on screen or in front of an audience or answer questions. Because whenever he does, like this week, even there was just these total like disasters, like trying to do a live stream and, or trying to do a speech and kind of just wandering from the podium or an interview on MSNBC where he just, he kept apologizing for his answers. He kept saying, well, I shouldn't have said it like that. 
It's almost as if they're trying to hide him. I don't think it's almost as if it is. They are trying to hide him, and for good reason. I mean, the man is clearly in the, at least in the early stages of dementia. You don't need a, a medical degree to diagnose that. And also, there arises a very credible allegation of a sexual assault by Joe Biden in 1993 by a woman who was a Senate staffer. So the Democrats are definitely trying to hide Biden. They're hoping they can make it through November. And here's the kicker, right? Here's the piece they resist us. They don't really want Biden to win. They're fine with Donald Trump as president. That's what this is all about. Because with Donald Trump as president, what that means is that they still have a system in which they do the bidding of Wall Street, and Wall Street pays them, right? They still have their jobs, they still have their positions, and they still have their privilege in the society with a Donald Trump re-election. They know that Joe Biden can't win. There's no way in the world Joe Biden can win. And if Donald Trump does succeed in putting money, even though this is insufficient by probably a factor of 10, if he does succeed in, in putting money in the average American's bank account, to sort of tie people over, even if it's just for this month, although I suspect he will do it till at least the election, to tie people over during this pandemic. This election in November may be a record blowout for Donald Trump. They don't care if Joe Biden can win or not, and that's why they're trying to hide him. They just want to make it to the election, and they want to make sure that Bernie Sanders doesn't win, which although I have to admit, uh, I have to concede uh, very sadly that Bernie Sanders is, is complicit in this conspiracy. Oh, how so? Well, I think just the fact that he's not challenging. I, look, you know, I, I don't know what happened on Super Tuesday. I do know this. I know that uh, Joe Biden did not have any money uh, or very little money left after after uh, South Carolina, where he had invested pretty much his whole campaign into South Carolina. Following that, he didn't have any money or very little money. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the has raised more money for more people than any, any presidential candidate in history. Joe Biden couldn't even afford to, to campaign in Massachusetts and Texas. Uh, the exit poll, the disparity between the exit polling and the actual results are uh, sometimes as wide as 15 percent, which uh, if you see international election monitors, they will say that is proof or evidence of uh, uh, the evidence that a, an election is not free and fair. And so by not challenging these very uh, very curious disparities. I think that, well, I think Bernie Sanders is doing an injustice to the American people. He's doing an injustice to himself. And mm. I don't think history will judge him kindly since he's done this basically in two consecutive presidential campaigns. Oh, okay. So his campaign you feel, is not being aggressive enough in challenging these questionable election results. You know, they did bring a lawsuit in California on behalf of what they said were a half a million disenfranchised voters. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I, I think very much like the bailout, the $1,200 that the Trump administration is supposed to uh, <laughs> deposit in Americans' accounts, I think that's insufficient by a factor of 10. I, I, you know, I've been covering elections and presidential elections uh, since 1988, right, since uh, George Bush ran, I guess, uh, against Michael Dukakis. I've never seen a candidate win any election of any kind without campaigning there or, or airing ads. And I, I'm told that Joe Biden did not air any ads and did not campaign in Texas. I don't know how you win that race, right? Mm -hmm. uh, same in Massachusetts, which is the home state of Elizabeth Warren uh, and, and the neighboring state of Bernie Sanders. How did he win those races? I, 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 you know, I, I'm at a loss to explain it, and I, I would love to see 
journalists in the media at least attempt to explain that. There, there seems to be no effort to do that. Well, you know, the um, when you say the media, the gray zone, which is a part of the alternative media, um, journalist Max Blumenthal, some of the other journalists there have brought this up and actually uh, went over to the Organization of American States right here in Washington, D.C., and held a, a press conference and said, you know, here you are going to Bolivia, uh, interfering in their elections, but here you have in Texas, uh, you know, where in Dallas they lost 10% of the votes. And right, right. and how, 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 where are the votes? You know, right. and, and if right. these same disparities happened in another country, you would be saying that it's evidence of election fraud and you would be calling for uh, monitors and investigations. You might even try to intervene militarily, right? So, you know, so I, you know, anyway, that, that is, um, the, those are the two kind of big stories here right now. The coronavirus, which is um, <clears throat> not really getting people the kind of analysis system- systemically that, that people need. And, you know, you can find it on YouTube. You can go to alternative media. But the American public is just, as you said, just being very underserved. Same, the same for uh, coverage of our so-called election. So um, I'm glad to know that you are watching and keeping track of, of what's happening here so we can have these discussions. Any final thoughts of what you'll be well, watching for? Just one quickly. And what's happening in the election reminds me very much of Zimbabwe, a country I covered for a few years back in the early aughts. And I covered an election in which Robert Mugabe, who was the liberation hero in that country, when it became when it went from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, he had an election after I guess he had been in office at that point 22 years. And I was there for a month in Zimbabwe, all around the country, traveling all around the country. And every single voter I interviewed said, "I'm going to vote for change." Now that means, of course, you're going to vote for the opposition. But then, when the results come down. The opposition didn't win. And this reminds me of the same thing, right? You, you hear people saying, you see the excitement that Bernie Sanders generates. You see people talking about Bernie Sanders, and yet the winner is Joe Biden. And just like you said, if this was any other country, we'd be screaming bloody murder. And so it just seems, it seems odd, not just that it's so brazen, but what's even odder is that as a journalist, who you would expect to be naturally curious people, wouldn't you sort of ask the question, how did Joe Biden come back from the dead? He didn't even place in these early elections, if I recall correctly. And now he's just on this, on this sort of unstoppable roll to the nomination. It just seems odd to me. You know, I, and, and I know we were going to try to wrap up, but that's what happens when we have these conversations. So maybe if you were here, you would get a wind of this whole narrative where they try to place into the being of Jim Clyburn this almost magical effect that he was able to, you know, summon the energy of the black voters of South Carolina and that energy of this Democratic base was able to propel Joe Biden like a slingshot, you know, through the remainder of the election. And the the thing that is that 
aside from that, the the thing that really bothers me is that not not only and I'm really struggling with this idea of black people, the most oppressed and, you know, manipulated portion of the electorate, you know, the most taken for granted by the Democratic Party, abused by the Democratic Party, forsaken by the Democratic Party, that this population, you know, my population is the one that is propelling the perpetuation of the neoliberal order that that we are going to be the population that is manipulated into basically confirming our own repression yeah. they they interview yeah. people in Mississippi black people in Mississippi who when asked said no we want medicare for all we want our college debt forgive we want we see our grandchildren and our children struggling with these debts for education they can't even use you know and so aside from the idea of this manipulation that obama destroyed um the traditional idea in the black community of solidarity international solidarity with other people of color around the world that that we almost intrinsically because we experienced the repression here we understood we had solidarity with people in vietnam you know, we had solidarity with people in the Palestinians, um, the Palestinians that we had. Yes. And of course, with the people in South Africa, just because we understood we were in the belly of the beast and we understood the evil that was being done to them because it was being done to us. But it occurred to me after this, this narrative of Clyburn that also that people had lost their hope. You know, I mean, oddly enough, you know, there's Obama hope and change, but that in addition to losing the solidarity, that we no longer voted our passion, you know, that we no longer voted our hope, but became, you know, voting this calculation of being safe or, or trying to project what we think white people will do. I, I, no, I I think that's an, that's an excellent, um, I don't know if we have time to talk about it, but quickly, let me just say this, because I think this is so important. I think what's happening is, to paraphrase King, we have integrated into a burning house, but not all of us are in there. And so I I think there still exists this radical black polity, which has been the vanguard of all progressive revolution in this country since since the Emancipation Proclamation, and really even before that, right? That's always been the the engine for progressive change in this country. If you see black people making demands on capital, you know that the working class is moving in the right direction. When When those people, when us, black people, and working class black people especially have been rendered invisible, you know that the working class in the United States of America is in trouble. And so what we see now are, much like we see in the Kerner Commission report from 1968, Two Americas, we see two black Americas. We see one of the James Clyburn, and I think, uh, although I don't know this, but I think primary black voters, particularly in the southern states, right, who are enthralled with the leadership, who are enthralled with the captain, who believe that we are to, if we're going to be saved, it's going to be by the captain, not the crew. That's James Clyburn. That's that's a Barack Obama. That's, uh, uh, you know, Deval Patrick and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. But the, the average, the, 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 the 99%, the majority, the Bolsheviks of the black community, I believe, still very much believe that it's the crew that's going to save us, still very much 
much believe that we are the most oppressed, we are the most unloved in this country, and we still, even if we don't articulate it, we still feel a certain solidarity with oppressed people all over the world. I think, I think this is just my opinion, but I think very much like Malcolm X said, there's going to be a war in this country, but it won't be, it won't be black versus white. It's going to be rich versus poor, and I, I still believe that's very true. And I think that black people, and this is the last thing I'll say. I, I know you're running out of time. But it's so amazing when you think about the riots in 68 and how so many black businesses protected themselves by putting that sign in the window, black owned. And that protected many of them. Think about this. Would that work today? I don't think it would. I don't think putting that sign in your window saying black owned would protect a lot of black businesses, a lot of the black talented tenth, to borrow a phrase from Du Bois, would, I don't think that sign would protect them, that 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 disclaimer will protect them because the rage is such that we recognize that people like James Clyburn, people like many of us, not all of us, many of us recognize that people like James Clyburn, people like Barack Obama uh, are here to delegitimize our demands on capital. That's all I have to say. Well, I'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market. How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joined us from Limon, Costa Rica. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to John Jeter and Niambi Carter. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show, or give us a nice rating on our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play, listed under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can support On The Ground on patreon.com forward slash On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Gregory Porter, Take Me to the Alley, and Stevie Wonder, Race Babbling. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, remember, no matter where we are, no matter our condition, Asada said it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. Take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>